0: Hi, everybody. Welcome to Unrestricted, the podcast that interviews noted public figures that have now returned to a more private life. My name is Steve Savitsky, president of B'nai Tzion Foundation, former president and chairman of many Jewish organizations. The people you're about to meet have great wisdom and experience. They were all leaders in the Jewish world and have much to share, unrestricted, with our listening audience. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Unrestricted, and today we have the real pleasure and honor of having Jonathan Pollard as our guest. Uh, Jonathan, good day. How are you?
1: I'm uh, doing quite well, thank you. It's very hot here.
0: It's very hot in Israel. I know. I've read about that. Uh, it's hot in a lot of places, even in certain places in the United States. Thank God, in the New York area where where I am, we only have big rains. We don't have to, we don't have to worry about, about heat. And anyway let's start off, you know, so I I was of course doing the research which I should do, anyone who uh respects their their guests. And I saw this incredible video of when you and your late wife Esther landed in in Eretz Israel. It was so emotional. Maybe you could walk us through the feelings you had as you were getting on the plane, while you're on the plane when you maybe saw Eretz Israel for the for the first time and then all of a sudden you're there and there's the prime minister I mean, for me, it was emotional watching it. I, I can't imagine what it was for you.
1: Well, the whole process of leaving the United States was uh, traumatic. Once my parole had ended, the the issue then was to get out of the country as quickly as possible because uh, we had information that the incoming Biden administration was going to uh, re-indict me. Really? Because I... Well, I hadn't really provided, I didn't really talk that much. And there were a lot of people that were very angry with that fact and wanted a second uh, second go at me. So we had to get out, I had to get out as quickly as possible. Unfortunately, even though I was at the time a dual citizen, uh, according to the law, I had to leave the country. I had to come in and leave on an American passport. So when we were told by the uh, State Department, kind of jokingly, that it would uh, take a very long time. He started getting very content at that point and got me an American passport very quickly. And so when we got on the plane that had been provided very graciously by Miriam and Sheldon Adelson to come home, it was with some sense of trepidation Uh and fear when we took off that I didn't know what was going to happen, whether we would be turned around or not. And it wasn't until... We actually crossed the um, the border, so to speak. That uh, I began to relax a little bit. So the flight itself was wonderful. I mean, it's it's hard to go fly commercial after you fly on Sheldon and Miriam Adelson's <laughs> airplane. It was uh, it was quite a quite nice. And um, so when we got closer and closer to Israel, uh, Miriam told us to go sit in the cockpit so we could see Israel as we came close to it. And it was early in the morning. It was three, four o'clock in the morning. And just as we rounded the horizon, the entire coastline lit up. And it was quite emotional. And uh, Esther, Alayah Salong, and I um, recited Psalms at that point, which we thought was the most appropriate thing to do. And um, when we finally landed, I noticed that the press was there and lots of lights. And I just my heart sank because um, promises promises had been made that uh, no publicity would accompany my arrival. (laughs) And uh, the entire press corps, it seemed, was there. So when we finally came to a stop, I looked outside the window. And lo and behold, there was the prime minister. There was Bibi Netanyahu. And um, I turned to Esther and I said, my God, it's the prime minister. What am I supposed to say? I'm I'm not prepared f- for this. And she smiled and she just said, I'm retired now. It's your show. <laughs> so, uh, so we finally um, made it out the airplane. And as I was descending the stairs, I was overcome with um, a need to thank the country for their support. Not so much the government, but the land and people of Israel for their support during our ordeal. So I couldn't kiss everybody in Israel. So what I did was I decided to kiss the land, which is the same thing. So that's, that's the background to what led up to that. There were a lot of uh, funny cartoons that were made um, the next day showing me kind of kneeling in front of uh, Bibi like he was uh, the king. And, um, yeah, I mean, you have to have a pretty good sense of humor in this country or a thick skin or better yet, both. It's a pretty rough place. And um, so I, Esther kind of calmed me down. and She said, this is Israel, you know. They just use any opportunity to make fun of anybody. So um, that's how we and we came home in the midst of COVID, and uh, we walked in. We had to go into bidood. We had to go into to to isolation. So I walked into our our garden apartment, and um, we're locked down, and there are bars on the window, of course. So I turned to Esther and I said, "Well, gee, I'm right at home. This seems very familiar to me. Locked down with bars on the window."
0: Amazing. Now I know I noticed that. I mean, I know he gave you a bracha. I was trying to listen to the video, but I couldn't exactly. I mean, I know you said Shachiano, but what what bracha did he give you? It was basically
1: a, a greeting bracha that you know I have, That I should have long. We should have long life.
0: I wasn't I wasn't really sure. I was it wasn't all that clear. But anyway, it was quite it was quite quite something. So of course I guess every bone was waiting for this and to happen and you more than anyone else after everything you've been through. And uh, you know, I guess everybody knows the story. I, I has there been a lot of books written about this or not?
1: Well, there have been several books written, none of which really had my involvement. So I can't say the definitive Book has been written yet on the case. Wolf Blitzer, Wolf Blitzer wrote a book called Territory of Lies, and it certainly was. Uh, so I, I can't give an endorsement to that book. And there, there have been several others, but I didn't have any involvement with any any of them.
0: Now, are you are you restricted from talking about that at all? And someday, twenty, fifty, a hundred years from now, people know the real story or what?
1: I doubt it. I really doubt it. People are, certain people are very vindictive in the United States. And um, right now, I'm more or less looking to the future rather than the past.
0: Are you allowed to go back? Well, I guess you are theoretically allowed to go back to the States, but you obviously would not want to because it might be yeah. too dangerous, correct?
1: Well, I wouldn't want to put my head in the noose. I'll put it that way. Okay. And, um, so no, I'm never going back.
0: And what about other places? Are you could you travel to Europe and other places? And have you done that at all? I mean,
1: well, theoretically, I can pretty much travel anywhere except places like Australia that ban uh, ironic ban people who have a criminal record. Um, you know, given the history of who settled uh, Australia, I, I've always found that rather humorous. So. If I were to travel, I would have to first make sure that um there wasn't any any problem in terms of entry because of my criminal background so
0: any it sounds to me like yeah. you really don't have any interest in traveling any place you're home, you're in Israel, that's where you want to stay. is that right
1: uh f- for the present time, yeah, okay,
0: so kind of going back, you know I mean obviously, you are a controversial person as far as what happened, the whole story, the fact that you pleaded guilty at the time and sent to prison. And I mean, I I presume, and if you don't have to talk about it, you don't want to, but why did you decide to plead guilty and take a a guilty plea at that time?
1: When I was initially arrested, I kept my mouth shut. And my wife at the time, who was very sick, uh, was being denied uh, medical treatment Uh, She was in prison as well. And from what I understood from the prison staff, who were very uncomfortable uh, preventing her from um, getting appropriate medical care, she was in really bad shape. So I was given a plea agreement that uh, basically identified me as a bona fide Israeli agent working on a... um, on an approved mission, on an approved operation. And um, I thought about that for a while, and I liked, at least it was a truthful indictment. And it said that um, I had no intent to harm the United States and that um, I was working on behalf of an ally, a non, a major non-NATO ally, Israel. So I thought that was also all right especially the intent part, which is critical in an indictment. And um, all of a sudden, the a team, a legal team, came back from uh, Israel with a box of documents with my fingerprints on them. And um, they said at that point, well, we really don't need your help at all. We don't need to have a plea agreement with you. We don't need anything. We have all the material we need to indict you and to, and to, and to convict you rather. So I, I said, okay, fine, do what you want to do, but, uh, you think you got everything. <laughs> and they didn't like that. So finally, um, the plea agreement was produced that I thought was, a, was a, appropriate. And, um, usually with that kind of indictment, you're looking at about, about five years. So, when I walked into the courtroom to take my plea, and my wife, was in a wheelchair at the time, the plea was switched. Somebody from the State Department walked in and handed the judge an edited or amended uh, plea agreement. And uh, when it was handed to me, the U.S. attorney was laughing, saying, well, I won't repeat the profanity, but it was, it was, uh, he, was, he was laughing. And I didn't understand it until I looked at the plea agreement. And it had been edited with blue and red ink. The blue is always American. The red is the other side. The blue ink had uh, initials AS, which stood for Avram Sofer. He He was really the State Department lawyer at the time. The Israeli who signed it, I couldn't make the initial out. But what they did was they changed me from being Being a bona fide agent to basically a mercenary, a renegade, and the Israeli part of the operation was amended to read an unapproved operation. So I turned to my lawyer and I said, you know, I'm an orphan. And it's not true. This uh, plea agreement is a lie. So the um, U.S. attorney basically looked at me and said, look at your wife you want to be responsible for her death, because that's what's going to happen if we, if, if we push this, if I push this. So with that in mind, I had no choice. I signed the uh, plea agreement, the amended plea agreement, and I forced my wife's signature. And the entire courtroom, as well as the judge, saw the fact that she had not signed it willingly. So when I stood before the judge, the judge asked me, are you taking this plea agreement willingly? And I said, no. I said, the the document is a lie. I'm basically perjuring myself by signing it. And they're threatening to kill my wife if I don't sign. And his only answer was, well, you have a pretty hard decision to make. (laughs) Okay, so um, I made a decision basically to save my wife at the time. So everything went downhill after then. Many years later, uh, Rehavim Zevi, uh, may his blood be avenged, he was a, a cabinet member at the time, got, got a hold of the cabinet uh, notes, the Israeli cabinet protocol it's called, concerning how they should react to me shortly after my arrest. And it makes for terrible reading. I can understand why it was suppressed for so long. It was 15, 16 years later that we got the document. And in there, Perez came in and just announced to everybody in the cabinet, it was a national unity government at the time, that uh, in discussions with um, George Shultz, the then Secretary of State, he had agreed to hand back the documents. And you could read, if you read the the cabinet uh, protocol, you can see that there was an explosion with everyone telling him, especially Arak Sharon, you had no right to do that. This had to be a a decision by the cabinet. And he said, uh, well, I had to make the decision because Schultz was screaming and yelling at me. And Sharon's comment at that point was you've just killed the agent. So the question was asked, uh, did you secure the agent's release? No. Well, and then what did you get? And he said a promise by the Secretary of State that these that the documents would not be used as evidence against the agent. And everybody, you could tell from the no, everybody was laughing at his naivete. Many many years later, my lawyers contacted George Shultz to find out what actually happened there, and Shultz said. He couldn't, he wasn't the attorney general. He couldn't say what documents could be used and what wasn't. And he said uh, no such um, exchange of uh, ideas or commitments had been made with Paris. Basically, Paris lied to the cabinet, which is no surprise if if you knew what that man was all about. So the documents themselves were the only evidence, ultimately, that was used in court against me. So, the whole thing was, uh, as we say here, a balagan. At that at that point, the the U.S. attorney had no intention of honoring the plea agreement, and as I said, it went downhill from there.
0: But the information that you actually gave Israel—I mean, now looking at it retrospectively—was it very important? Did it really? Did it help Israel in the military or intelligence? Or looking at it now, saying, well, it probably wasn't. All that important? Not, not. I'm just saying. At the time, you didn't really know. But looking back at it now, how important yeah, was I did this? Know. Oh, you did know.
1: Yeah, I did know. Um, you have to understand context. The context of the operation was an undeclared intelligence embargo that had been instituted by Caspar Weinberger and Admiral Bobby Ray Inman in the wake of our raid on the Iraqi nuclear reactor at Tueta. And both Inman, who later became the deputy director of CIA, and Weinberger, swore blood revenge on Israel. And as I said, instituted a, a pretty drastic intelligence, a reduction of intelligence sharing with Israel. That was the context that my operation was approved. By the cabinet. I mean, it's a fiction that this was all uh doing. It wasn't at all. He took the spear in the back to save the cabinet. But it, they all knew what was going on, every single one of them. So I have to ask you a question. Maybe this, this will be a good answer as well. The cabinet was not stupid. They weren't amateurs. They understood that if this operation was compromised, that there could be some very, very serious diplomatic blowback uh, on Israel. And knowing that, they still felt that the information that was obtained was worth it. So when you ask, was the operation worthwhile, you have to look and, and, and see what was the decision making process that lay behind the approval for the operation everyone in israel in a decision making position knew what was going on with the cutoff of intelligence and they also knew what the consequ- the potential consequences of that cutoff could be it was a matter of life and death for the potentially for the country so they made a decision that the potential gain for the country, uh, overrode the potential loss if the operation was comprom- were compromised, and there would be a diplomatic fallout and so on, so on and so forth. So yes, to say, to ask whether the information was impo- that important. Um, yes, it was.
0: So um, I mean, obviously, look, there are people out there who look at you as a hero, uh, and myself included, by the way. I want you to know that. But there are other people who probably look at you as a traitor so how do you how do you feel how would you answer somebody if you met i'm sure you meet a lot of people i'm sure that many people all i could think of in my own context is that i was in israel several months ago and i happened to be in a taxi cab and you happened to be walking on the street where right near where you live and my taxi driver saw you got out of the taxi to give you brachas, and then was so excited to see you. So I myself witnessed it personally, but I'm sure there are people who probably don't feel the same way. When you encounter them, what do you do?
1: Well, first of all, when the issue of treason came up, it was first introduced at my sentencing by Weinberg. And later, in my first appeal, before the D.C. Court of Appeals, the Judges were headed by—the three judges that heard the case uh, were headed by none other than Ruth Bader Ginsburg at the time. That was just before she was uh, nominated for the Supreme Court. And um, there was another judge, Jewish judge, that had uh, just left the CIA as the inspector general. And uh, there was another judge, a non-Jewish judge. And all three of them berated the government for mischaracterizing me as a traitor and the which for a crime uh according to the constitution can only be applied to somebody who gives aid and comfort to an enemy in time of war so in my case uh the the government you know basically if you read the the uh the case they apologized and said that well we hope that no harm was done and the comment by the judges was well this is what was handed to the judge at sentencing. You know, wh- what do you think was going to happen? So I was never accused. I was never indicted. And I actually wasn't sentenced for treason. So when somebody immediately, you know, reaches for that epithet, you have to understand that reason and logic and the facts don't matter. There's something else there's something else involved with that the fact that i was never accused of intending to harm the country is an important point which i've actually used in discussion with people who feel rather negatively about me why do i do that because i think you'll agree that there is certain information which is so sensitive that if it's compromised to anybody even our the us is closest friends and allies, would do irreparable damage to national security. And so if I were to have compromised that type of information, I could have and I should have been indicted for intending to harm the country because I should have known better. I should have known the potential consequences of compromising that type of information. But the information involved in the case didn't didn't really reach that level. So the only way I, I, can, I can talk to people about this issue, if they feel that way, is to keep probing w- what is your problem. Non-Jews or Jews, they have two different perspectives on it. The non-Jews are using any opportunity they can to damn the entire community as unreliable, uh, disloyal, what have you. Irrespective of the facts of the case, as far as the Jewish community is concerned, uh, the main problem I had was with the so-called leadership, quote unquote, who felt that what I had done had somehow compromised our position as perceived loyal citizens in the United States. And my response to them has always been excused under our system of justice in the United States. We don't believe in collective punishment. I did what I did as an individual. And if you feel that I compromised the entire community, then you're really not very sure about our position in American society. I mean, going back to George Washington and his promise at Turo Synagogue that we would be treated equally in this country kind of fell by the wayside when I was arrested, um, both by the government's use of my case to undermine the perceived loyalty of the American Jewish community. And it did come from the government. And, um, you know, the perceived understanding of Israel as an ally, it was clearly, the case was clearly used to compromise Israel's standing as a valued, loyal ally. That was all through the case. This came up. So, When somebody comes at me with this charge of having committed treason or disloyalty or whatever, I'll accept the disloyalty. I mean, I committed a crime, and um, I deserve to be punished for that, regardless of what my motives were, and regardless as to the facts of the case. But I just assumed that the sentence would be proportional. But to others who just absolutely want to kind of pound their chests and profess their undying 101% loyalty to the United States. I, I can't argue with them. I mean, they have other problems that they really need to see somebody to work out, and I'm not the guy uh, to, to do that.
0: So you spent all those years in prison. I've heard you speak about it, and it sounds like a very dangerous place. I mean, I think I heard you say one of the interviews, you had a knife with you at all times. Because you never knew what was going on. Really, was it just lawless? Is that what it is inside the prison? Well, the first seven
1: years I spent in isolation. And the biggest danger in isolation comes from yourself. Because you're not around anybody else. And when I went into isolation, Gordon at the time told me, The prison was very low, was very far below ground. And uh, he said to me, you know, when you come out, you'll be an old man and uh, in a body bag. And I just looked at him and I said, "Um, I don't think so. God runs the world, not you. And he said, well, we'll see about that. And seven years later, I came up into the sun and there he was. And I said, you see, (laughs) I told you, God runs the world. So. When I left that prison, I went to an open prison. And there is no prison that's safe, even you know on federal or state level. Because you have all kinds of people in there. You have all kinds of administrations. You have all kinds of guards. So you never know from one minute to the next or one second to the next what can happen. I saw enough people pretty brutally killed. And um, it's something that really was quite sobering. I, Basically, for 23 years that I was in this facility, I didn't get a full night's sleep. My roommate, for that entire period of time, who was truly innocent, by the way, everybody realized it, including the sentencing judge. And he and I um, spelled each other in terms of an hour on and an hour off, because our door couldn't be locked. Which comes as a shock to a lot of people who think, you know, clanging iron doors and turning keys. No, we had a wooden door, and it was never locked. So we had to stay up at night, armed with a knife, to make sure that if anybody came in the room, um, we would be able to handle that.
0: Did anybody ever come in, or not? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Okay. We don't have to go into that. Okay.
1: <laughs> I, I I'll just end it. Leave it at that. Yeah, there were there were some people stupid enough to come in the room. My roommate had been a former Special Forces um, soldier, and um, he could very definitely take care of himself. So we watched each other's back.
0: Whatever happened to him? Did he ever get out? I, I don't know.
1: Um, I'm hoping that if anybody hears this story, they'll try to help him. I, I, I tried to get a lawyer for him. I don't know what happened with that. You know, I'm not allowed to be in communication with him, obviously. But he's a truly innocent man. And he was given a horrendous sentence for a crime he never committed. It was a bombing. He unfortunately was unfaithful to his wife. And um, her brother, who was an uh, explosive ordnance expert, put a bomb together as best we could figure out. And it detonated. Unfortunately, this was um, at the time of the Unabomber. And, uh, you know, anybody associated with a bombing got, got hammered. But everybody who's even minimally aware of his case real- realizes that he couldn't have done it. And um, so I, I can't say that there are a lot of innocent people in prison. He was one of them. He was was one of them. But there are an awful lot of people who have been overly punished. That much I can also say. And it's a real indictment of the American criminal justice system to see so many lives just absolutely destroyed out of vengeance or a, a need to look tough against crime. When a lot of these guys, they really did deserve a second chance. They made mistakes, stupid mistakes, but it wasn't out of malice. And as long as no one was hurt or killed, I think that a lot of those people should, should be released, not the way they were eventually released, you know, with the uh, Second Chance Act, where these drug guys were just, were just dumped on the street for political reasons, because they're going to go straight back and do what they've been doing before. There, There's no rehabilitation. There's no rehabilitation in
0: prison. Yeah, I know. I hear you. But, so let's just kind of move on to another topic, which is meeting your wife, Esther, who obviously is a Sudeikis, was a Sardecus and a Shemesh in heaven, Leah. Uh, and mm-hmm. you, how did she meet? I mean, you were in prison, so well, you didn't go out to the local movie together on a date. So <laughs> what happened?
1: <laughs> we had known each other for a very long time. And um, I'm one of those guys that couldn't pull the trigger. So I should have married her about 20 years before (laughs) and just uh, lost the opportunity. So when I was arrested, um, she immediately called my parents. She was in Israel. She was uh, in the uh, justice ministry, the civil rights division. And she said, I'm coming. I'm coming back. I have to, to, to be with him. I have to see him. To help him, and uh, they said don't you dare even think about that um they'll they'll somehow rope you into it. so it wasn't until and my first wife and I divorced that uh, uh, Esther and I officially got back together again, and um shortly after uh, I was sent to the the open prison uh open compound prison. Uh, we made a decision that uh, we should get married, and they didn't give me permission to get married. the The people in Washington they wanted me to talk, and I, I wasn't going to do that. So, when confronted with a brick wall, you can either you know bash your head about again, uh, against it, or go over it, or around it, which is what we did. We had a, a rabbi, a friend of ours, who's since passed come in on a clergy visit uh, with a witness uh, and a small ketubah and a small little glass of wine and a glass to break. And um, the chuppah was the sky. And we went through a marriage ceremony. And um, the reaction from the prison was pretty dire. And um, when they found out about it, and they were going to give me diesel therapy and diesel therapy meant that um, I wouldn't spend two consecutive nights in the same prison or jail. They would send me all over the country to county jails, city jails, federal prisons, state prisons for one night. And then I'd be moved on. I'd never see anybody. I have no uh, telephone privileges, writing privileges, nothing. It's like internal exile. And... um I had a conversation with our warden at the time, who was very embarrassed by what happened, understandably. And I explained to him that he had given us permission to get married. He he had done the right thing. But that uh, it was his um, enemies in Washington to embarrass him also, who had denied me my right to get married. And um, that he shouldn't take it out on me. So this conversation went back and forth. And, uh, okay, he dropped uh, his threat to give me diesel therapy, and I, I, to this day, I thank him for doing the um, the right thing by me. So we got married, and it was it was difficult because um, in the federal system you don't have what's called conjugal visits. You can't be with your wife. Um, there are some states uh, that do allow that, and it's a pretty healthy um, concession to the prisoners as long as they keep a clean record. And it's a great way, by the way, to keep peace in prison because as you can imagine, there's an awful lot of sexual tension. And unfortunately, it's uh, manifested in a lot of really horrific horrific ways on on weaker prisoners. So the the fact of the matter is those state prisons that actually have conjugal visits generally are very, very quiet, or very well-run, and uh, there doesn't seem to be a lot of violence, or at least sexual violence, in those facilities. So we got married, and um, for all those years, I mean, we had visits in the visiting room. Uh, I wasn't allowed to touch her, I wasn't allowed to kiss her, but we developed a marriage in that prison a very good marriage in that prison. We actually had to talk to each other. And um, it was wonderful. I mean, I know this sounds strange, but when I got out and the possibility of a physical relationship uh, was available, it was not something that was dramatic because we were were an old couple by that time. And it was just... uh, Kind of like icing on the cake, if if I could use that metaphor.
0: Well, wow, it's unbelievable. So yeah, because uh, she was the champion. I mean, going around and uh was formidable. She, what she did was uh, was really amazing. Uh, you know, there's uh, a limited time on the, on the programs, so there's so much I could talk to you about. But, uh, let me just go on to one or two other things quickly. So you're in Israel now. Baruch Hashem, you're doing great remarried again I know the whole story with your new wife Rivka who uh, Esther actually introduced the two she of you together schedule. which one the wonderful story and uh are you happy so what is, what are some of the goals you have hopefully you'll have Arifas yomim and shanim him in a long long life so what are some of the goals <laughs> that you have set for yourself now for this stage of your life
1: one of them is to be the best husband I can to my wife Rivka she has seven children, and I have an instant family. Wow. <laughs> so I have to be a good husband and a good father. Number two, I have to make sure that Esther's legacy is safeguarded. And to that end, I've helped start a, gun, uh, a kindergarten in her name. She was a teacher originally in Tel Aviv. It's called Gan Esther. And um, I'm doing other acts of what we call a chesed shalemet for her to just maintain her her legacy. Thirdly, I would like to leave a better legacy for myself. And to that end, I've got a number of startups that I'm uh, managing right now uh, in the area of uh, water desalination, brown water purification, synthetic uh, protein, uh, power generation, power storage. It's it's stuff that I um, what I call meat and potatoes technology that will significantly improve the um, both the security and the the life of people here in Israel and hopefully around the world. Well, wow,
0: that's wonderful. I didn't realize that. That's really great. Well, listen, the last part of the program, I have this very really quick thing called a lightning round. I ask you a few questions. Just kind of tell me your thoughts as we as we go through. Maybe the first thing that comes to your mind. Oh boy, this is a tough one to ask you, but who's the greatest person you ever met? Esther. Esther, I knew that would be the answer. And um, is there anyone you'd like to meet in the world that you haven't met right now?
1: Believe it or not, I wouldn't mind meeting Elon Musk.
0: Oh, okay, I hear you. And uh, who's the smartest person you ever met?
1: Esther. <laughs> There's no question. There's no question at all.
0: <laughs> okay, okay, That's that, that's really, really, really good. And um, I know you're a very spiritual person. I know that. And um, so tell me a little bit about what's your favorite Chag?
1: Wow. That's like saying, what's your favorite uh, mitzvah? All the mitzvot supposedly are equal. Right. As far as the Chagim are concerned, I know this is going to sound really crazy, but Tisha bav it's not a Chag.
0: Well, it it will be. Hopefully someday it will be a Chag, so it is a Chag. That's
1: the whole point. That's the whole point. And that keeps my faith on the Derach, so to speak, that we can finally all see the um, the Moshiach come and that we have the Giela Shlema. So in that sense, while the, the uh, Tisha B'Av, a day in which I was born, by the way. Oh, wow. Yeah. Wow. Uh, so while Tisha B'av, it may be strange to say it's it's a favorite occasion for me, religious occasion. What it portends is so tremendous that in spite of the pain and and the sadness surrounding the day, there is a glimmer of hope. It's like what happened when Rav Akiva saw the foxes in the Beit So that's why at the end of, of the Tisha B'Av, I always feel expectant that the next day Moshiach could come, we could have our our Giyu so I guess that's my answer for that.
0: That's great and it's a wonderful answer. Well listen, thank you so much Jonathan for coming on the program and listening to you and your story, and um, everything should go well with you, and I uh, look forward to meeting you the next time I come to you, Rishul. I, I know exactly where you live, so I'm going to hang around the corner. <laughs> <laughs>
1: okay, that sounds like a threat. No, 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 God forbid. You'll be more than welcome. My uh, Rivka is an absolutely fantastic cook. Wonderful. So you're, you're welcome.
0: You got it. Be well. Take care. Nice, nice having you on the program. Thank you. My throat. Thanks for tuning in to Unrestricted, hosted by Steve Savisky. The show was produced and edited by Gilad Brownstein and is a production of B'nai Zion.